1989, a man was arrested for a triple murder. What no one knew at the time was that this story would eventually lead to an overhaul of the death penalty in Tennessee 33 years later. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome to Crime Lines. I am getting ready to pack for my trip to CrimeCon UK on June 10th and 11th in London. So let me know if you're going because I would love to meet you there. I'm also preparing for something else. And if you follow me on social media, you probably already know what I'm going to say. Starting June 8th, I am launching a new true crime podcast with my good friend Eric from the podcast True Consequences. We have, oh so creatively named it, Crime Lines and Consequences. We will cover one case every two weeks and use that case as a springboard into a larger conversation. Upcoming episodes will look at the impact of social media on cases, the MMIW movement, hidden abuse, bail reform, and so much more. These conversations aren't unlike the ones Eric and I have by ourselves within our own podcasts. We are just making them actual conversations between two people and a third when we have guests, and then hopefully we can expand that conversation on social media as we engage our listeners in thinking about true crime in a more holistic way. The trailer is available now if you search for Crime Lines and Consequences in your favorite podcast app, and if you don't see it, let me know so that I can make sure we get indexed in that app as well. The first full episode will be out in Podcatchers and on YouTube on June 8th, because we are doing this on video as well. So if you prefer watching people talk to just listening to them, you might want to check out our YouTube channel. I'll leave the name of the show in the show notes so that you can remember to go back and look for it. But that show is not out until June 8th, and we are here for Crime Lines today. So let's get started with Judy Smith. If you're a longtime listener, you know I've already covered a case of another woman named Judy Smith. She disappeared while on a trip with her husband, and her body was inexplicably found hundreds of miles away from where she was last seen. That episode came out in December 2019, if you want to go back and listen. This case is a much, much different one than that. This takes place in Tennessee, where Judy married for the first time pretty young. At 20, she and her husband, Stephen Burnett, welcomed their first son, Chad. Two years later, their son, Jason, was born, but it wasn't long after that when Stephen and Judy divorced in 1977. She was 23 years old and the single mom to two kids. Judy then married a man named Gary, but this marriage didn't last either. And by 1985, Gary and Judy were separated, though they were not divorced. It was during the separation that Judy met Oscar Franklin Smith, who went by Frank. Frank was also a single parent to two children. He had a daughter and a son but they were being raised primarily by Frank's mother in Pleasant View, Tennessee. Judy and Frank's relationship was a whirlwind. Within months of meeting in August of 1985, Judy and Frank went to Reno, Nevada for a quickie marriage. But before they could get married, Judy had to file some quickie divorce papers first, since she and Gary hadn't actually divorced yet. She filed an uncontested divorce application in Nevada, which can take as little as a week to be approved. The day it was approved, she and Frank got married. Months after their wedding, Judy learned she was pregnant, and they were thrilled when they learned it was twins. In December of 1986, she gave birth to two little boys. Between them, Judy and Frank had five boys and one girl, though only four of the children lived with them full time. Chad, Jason, and the twins, and they settled just outside Nashville, Tennessee. It wasn't long after the birth of the twins that people started suspecting that things were not great in the home, though Judy stayed quiet on most details. But one incident her parents remembered was when Judy came without Frank to a family birthday party, and it would have been 1987 or 88. Everything seemed fine until Judy was ready to leave. She asked her parents if they could sign a note that spelled out where she had been that day and what time she left their house to head home. 
Her parents were understandably confused, but Judy insisted that she could not go home without that note because Frank didn't trust her, and he demanded to know where she was. Her parents were disturbed by this and wondered about this very apparent controlling behavior, but they didn't want to push. So they signed the note, like she asked, and Judy went home. Because Judy was so quiet about things, we don't know anything else that happened until mid-June 1989. On that day, Judy's 13-year-old son, Jason Burnett, was arguing with Frank. And Frank, a full-grown man, became violent. He hit and kicked Jason before biting him on the back. Then he pulled out a gun and pointed it at Jason's head. Jason was terrified. Frank then pointed the gun up and fired into the ceiling, demanding that Judy leave and take her two older boys with her. But he threatened her life if she went to the police, tried to take the twins, or took the car. So Judy, Jason, and Chad fled the trailer and walked a mile before they were able to call someone for help. Judy went to the police and filed a report for the assault on Jason. Frank was arrested, and Judy then got custody of the twins. They all spent a few days in a domestic violence shelter before Judy had a place to live with her children. So whatever abuse Frank had been subjecting Judy to over those years, we don't know. But we do know that when he turned on her kids, she left, and she had no intention of ever going back. On June 19th, Judy got a restraining order against Frank, and he then filed for divorce. In mid-July, Judy was given temporary custody of her and Frank's two kids, and he was given weekend visitation. But he made it pretty clear that he intended on pursuing primary custody, and he was not going to make the divorce an easy one. Over the course of the summer, Frank would call Judy at the restaurant where she worked. The pretense of calling would usually be to discuss something pertaining to their children or something about the divorce. But Judy would have another server listen in so that that woman could be a witness to what was actually said. These conversations often turned abusive, and from June until August 1989, Judy's coworker heard Frank threaten Judy's life at least a dozen times, and one time he threatened Chad and Jason too, accusing Judy of treating them better than she treated the two sons they shared. Judy was so afraid of Frank that she brought a gun into the house for protection. But then she found that she was just facing another worry. What if one of the kids got the gun and hurt themselves or hurt someone else? So she ended up getting rid of it. On August 1st, Judy went to the home she had previously shared with Frank, where he still lived, to pick up some of the things that were hers and the children's. So if you remember, she, Chad, and Jason walked out with the clothes on their backs. After a month and a half, she finally had the courts involved and was able to go over to get her things. I just want to interject something here, something that maybe Judy didn't know was an option, or back then it wasn't an option. But today, you have the right to call the police and have them escort you when you go pick your things up from a former partner, a roommate, or even your parents if you feel the situation is unsafe. My husband and I once helped a friend move out with a sheriff's deputy sitting on the front porch, and my friend didn't even have a restraining order. She just asked for assistance in getting her things because her soon-to-be ex was acting a bit unpredictable. Now, the police officer is not going to mediate any arguments about what items you're taking and what you're leaving, but they're there to keep things from escalating to violence. But back in 1989, I don't know if this was an option or if Judy would have even thought to ask for this help. While Judy was over there packing up some clothing, Frank started an argument and soon enough he grabbed her. He tied her up, sexually assaulted her, and then ran a knife across her throat, threatening to kill her. When Judy left the house, she went to the police and showed them the marks on her wrists from where she had been tied up. She filed a report, and Frank was once again arrested for this assault and ordered to stay away from Judy. 
After this, the calls to Judy at work ended. In spite of there being two pending cases against Frank for violence against family members, Judy was still legally required to send her twins, who were toddlers, with Frank at least every other weekend. He'd generally pick them up from her parents' house so that she wouldn't have to have direct contact with him. But Frank still tried to send messages to Judy, like when in early September 1989, he told her father to tell her that he had been playing with kid gloves, but the gloves were coming off. Around the same time, 35-year-old Judy moved into a little house in Nashville with her kids. Chad was 15 and Jason was 13, and the twins were nearly three. They were ready to settle down into their new lives that would hopefully not include Frank any more than was ordered by the court. Judy even started seeing someone new. And then, pretty suddenly, Frank seemed to calm down. Even the guy Judy was dating mentioned to a coworker that Frank hadn't been as aggressive or volatile, which made life easier for everyone. No one knew why he had a sudden change of heart. If you're a generous person, maybe you'd say he had burned through his anger at Judy for the ending of their marriage, and he was ready to move on more peacefully. If you're a bit more cynical, you might think that it was because he was set to go to court on October 30th on those assault charges, and he hoped being nice to Judy would get her to stop cooperating with the authorities. Judy welcomed the peace, regardless of why it was happening. So when Frank suggested that they get together as a family on Sunday, October 1st, she agreed, particularly since their plans were in public places. She didn't want to push her luck, though, so she did tell her new boyfriend to just stay away that day to help keep the peace. That morning, Judy, Frank, and the four kids went out to breakfast, and then the older boys watched the little ones back at home while Frank went with Judy to look at used cars. He knew a lot more about cars than she did, so she was open to his help. They didn't find anything that day that Judy liked and was in her price range, so Frank offered to take the twins that night. He had the next day, Monday, off of work, so he could stay with them while Judy went back out looking for a car while her older boys were at school. He would then bring them home Monday evening. Judy thought that sounded like a good thing, and letting Frank have an extra night with the boys would also show that she was willing to work with him and be flexible. So Frank left with the twins around 9.30 or so to drive to his home about 30 minutes outside of Nashville in Pleasant View. Around 10.30, Judy called her sister, and they chatted a bit. She mentioned that Frank had taken the boys so she could keep looking for a car. The next day, Monday, October 2nd, 1989, Chad and Jason Burnett never made it to school, and Judy never went to any car lots. It was around 3.30 in the afternoon when Judy's eight-year-old nephew went over to her house. As he was a minor and I've not seen him speak out as an adult, we're just going to call him James. James usually went to Judy's house on Mondays after school so that Judy could babysit him. James walked in, as he always did, and saw one of his cousins lying on the floor. He called out, but there was no movement. Not sure what was going on, he picked up a toy car and threw it at his cousin to see if he would move. When he didn't, James saw something he described as purple stuff, which was dried blood. James ran across the street to a neighbor's house and found 15-year-old Robert. To an 8-year-old, a 15-year-old looked pretty grown, so he told Robert what he saw. Robert went over to the house and went through the back door. There he saw 15-year-old Chad Burnett on the kitchen floor, covered in blood. The table was overturned due to a broken leg, pictures were knocked over, and the telephone had been ripped from the wall. There had obviously been a massive physical fight in the kitchen. Robert walked through the house and went into one of the bedrooms. There he saw 13-year-old Jason Burnett on the floor at the foot of the bed. He was lying next to a hairdryer that was still running. That's when Robert left the house and he and another neighborhood boy ran to a fire station half a block from the house to get help. 
Robert's first thought was that something happened between Chad and Jason because he knew they fought a lot and sometimes physically. Jason even once had a black eye and claimed Chad had given it to him. I mean, we don't know for sure if it was Chad or if Jason was covering for Frank, as kids sometimes do. But Robert was just trying to piece together what could have happened. And the idea that someone had gone into the house to murder two teenagers just didn't make sense. But what Robert didn't see that first responders did see was the body of 35-year-old Judy Smith. She was in the bed in the same room Jason's body was in. But Robert, having seen his two friends dead, ran out before he ever saw her. Judy had been stabbed with two weapons. One appeared to be a knife, and the other was a sharp needle-like item like an ice pick. She was also shot in the left arm and the neck. The shot to the neck severed her spinal cord and was the immediate cause of death. After her death, it appears the killer came back to her body and slashed her neck. This was likely to make sure she was dead. Chad was found with a number of defensive wounds. He tried to fight off his attacker, who repeatedly stabbed him with the same two weapons that his mother had been stabbed with. His neck was slashed, and he was shot three times, with the final two shots being immediately fatal. Jason had also tried to fight off his attacker, as evidenced by the defensive wounds. Unlike his mother and brother, he was not shot. His neck had also been slashed, and he was stabbed in the torso. These types of injuries on three victims does seem like the work of at least two killers who had three different weapons, but the investigators believed it was possible there was only one attacker. The two boys, after the attack on their mother, had stayed to try to save her and then to save each other rather than running away and saving themselves. The gun and knife were not found at the house, but a needle-like object was found. It was an awl, which is a tool used to punch holes in things, usually leather or wood. A 22 caliber cartridge was found at the scene, and it matched the type of bullets taken from the bodies, so they at least knew what type of gun they were looking for. The medical evidence to set the time of death was pretty wide. It was estimated to be at least 12 hours before the bodies were examined, which puts it as before 4.30 in the morning. There was undigested pizza in the stomachs of the boys, which meant they ate about an hour or an hour and a half before their deaths. Even though they were teenage boys and teenage boys can eat pizza at any time, it was a school night so it's likely it was on the earlier side and not, say, like, 2 a.m. Now, I know I've said it before that you never know what part of a case will hit you, and I've had teenage boys, and eating pizza as a bedtime snack when they should probably already be in bed is such a normal moment, only to know that in less than two hours, both of those boys and their mother would be brutally killed. It's hard to even process that but let's get back to the case. The police ended up with a non-medical clue as to the time of death, and that was a 911 call. And it explained why the phone had been yanked off the wall. At 11.22 p.m., someone dialed 911. The only words that the caller got out were, help me, and then the address of Judy's home. It was initially reported that it was Judy who called, but it was actually Jason. After this very short exchange, the line went dead. It was probably then that the killer ripped down the phone. Police were dispatched to the scene after this 911 call, and they looked around. They didn't get an answer to their knock at the door, and they didn't see anything suspicious outside. So at 11.40 p.m., they radioed in that they found nothing, and they assumed it was a crank call. And then they left. Due to the injuries sustained, even if the police barged in when they arrived, 
it's very unlikely they would have saved any lives. But they would have saved 8-year-old James and 15-year-old Robert the trauma they experienced by finding the bodies. A review of procedure showed that the police followed the proper protocol under those circumstances, though this obviously led to some people thinking maybe the proper protocol could be refined a bit. The 911 call, like all 911 calls, was recorded, and it had a lot of background noise. With the hope they could isolate the background and get more clues, they sent it to the FBI to enhance it. But that would come later. On the day the bodies were found, the police were much more focused on finding Judy's twins who were not in the home. The investigators with the Nashville Metropolitan Police called Frank's local police and said they were investigating a homicide and they needed to locate the two children along with Frank. A detective went out to Frank's house where Frank was standing out in his front yard. After verifying that the twins were okay, the detective let Frank know that the Metro police were on their way to talk to him. Frank agreed to speak with them, but he didn't ask why they wanted to talk. Frank was interviewed for about 35 minutes. They asked him questions about Judy, his kids, his relationship with them, and all of that. They didn't tell him about the murders until later in the interview, and Frank again had not asked why they were asking him about Judy. Of course, they also wanted to know where Frank was the night before, and Frank told them. He then signed a consent form for the search of his home and car, but asked to talk to an attorney before answering more questions, and the interview ended around 8.30. For his alibi, Frank said he was driving to Kentucky. He had told Judy that he had Monday off from work, but then he remembered he actually did have a job site to go to. He was supposed to go to Moorhead, Kentucky, which was a four and a half hour drive to fix a piece of machinery. Frank didn't want to go back on his promise to keep the boys, so he drove them to his parents' house so that they could stay there. Frank's boss had told him that if he left first thing Monday morning, he could get to Moorhead around midday fix the machinery, and then turn around and be home by dinner time. Instead, Frank decided to leave the twins with his parents and drive to Moorhead in the overnight hours. He could then nap in his car before being at the plant when it opened. Then he could be home even earlier. When talking to the police the first time, both Frank and his mother said that he had left her house around 10.30. Frank said he drove straight to Kentucky from there. When checking with the plant where Frank went the next day, he was there at 8 a.m. ready to work. So let's test this against the timeline we have. The 911 call came in at 11.22 and the police arrived at 11.27. Everything at that point was quiet, so either the killer had left already or the victims were dead and the attacker was laying low inside the house waiting for the police to leave. If Frank left his mother's house around 10.30 and drove to the scene of the murder, he would have gotten there around 11 p.m. That was plenty of time for him to enter the home and kill the family before the police arrived at 11.27. If he left and immediately headed to Kentucky, he would have arrived at 4 a.m., He wasn't seen until 8 a.m. when the plant opened, which gave him four hours to spare. So not only did Frank have enough time to get to Judy's house and commit the murders, he had plenty of time afterwards to clean up and dispose of evidence. But just because Frank could have done it doesn't mean he did do it. For that, they needed more evidence. One piece they had early on came from talking to the neighbors to see if anyone saw anything. One of Judy's neighbors had guests that evening, which included their son-in-law. He told the police that he saw a white LTD parked outside Judy's house that night, and that was the same car Frank drove. This witness put the car there around 11 p.m., which would have been right around the time of the murders. Frank said it couldn't have been him because he left the house around 9 or 9.30. So was it possible that the witness had the time wrong and had seen the car when it was there earlier? 
Because this is kind of like the situation with the Dustin Weedy, Tracy Richter case that we covered a couple weeks ago. If Frank went there to kill the family, why would he have parked his car out front where anyone could have seen him? I'm kind of iffy on this witness sighting, so thankfully they found more evidence in the house that was much more compelling. One was that all that was left at the scene and was believed to be one of the murder weapons. When the police searched Frank's house, they found a leatherworking kit. It had a number of tools in it, but it was notably missing the awl. Okay, so this only lightly links Frank to one of the possible murder weapons. But they did have witnesses that linked him to the others. Like the knife. Witnesses said that Frank generally carried a buck knife on his belt, but he didn't wear it again after the murders. And as for the gun, they found a holster in his home, but no gun. Witnesses said that he did own a .22, which was consistent with a murder weapon, though it was never found. Thankfully for the case, they had more than just this. The most damning thing found in the house was a handprint in blood that was left on a bedsheet near Judy's body. It was the only print found, and that's because the killer wore gloves for most of the attack. We know this because a brown cotton left-hand glove was found discarded near a blood-spattered wall. It looked like it had fallen off in the struggle. This bloody handprint on the sheet had a very interesting feature. It only showed the pinky, index finger, and thumb, as though the person who left that print was missing their middle two fingers on their left hand. And Frank was missing the middle two fingers on his left hand. Beyond even that, they did a 15-point comparison between the bloody handprint and Frank's prints and found zero dissimilarities. Frank was at the top of the suspect list and was arrested in early November 1989 after the enhancement of the 911 call came back. According to the police in the background of the call, you can hear Chad say Frank's name. Frank Smith was charged with three charges of first-degree murder, and the state was seeking the death penalty. Nine months after the murders, in July 1990, the jury who would decide Frank's fate was seated. The prosecution started where they almost always start, and that's by laying out their theory of the crime. According to the state, Frank started acting nicer to Judy leading up to the murders in order for her to drop her guard, which unfortunately she did. He then lied to her, saying he didn't have work on Monday, so he had an excuse to bring his twins home with him. Frank dropped them off at his parents' house to get them safely out of the way for what he really had planned. He then drove back to Judy's house and either knocked or let himself in through the unlocked back door. He came prepared with weapons and gloves. As the attack was underway, Jason made it to the kitchen phone to call for help. When Frank saw this, he grabbed the phone and ripped it from the wall. Knowing the police were on their way, he brutalized the children to make sure they were dead before he left. Then Frank drove towards Kentucky to give himself the alibi that he had left on this work trip, a trip his boss told him not to even take until the next day. The time from 10.30 when Frank left his mom's house until he showed up at the plant in Kentucky at 8 a.m. gave him more than enough time to commit the crime. As for motive, the state offered multiple. One was to avoid prosecution in the assault cases. The second was to get custody of his and Judy's twins. And the third was to collect life insurance. Frank had taken out three insurance policies per victim. He had a $10,000 policy on Judy and two $20,000 policies. The latter two were taken out the same year as the murders. As for the boys, mind you, these are teenagers. He had a $4,000 policy on each, a $5,000 policy on each, and a $10,000 policy on each. I'll go ahead and do the math for you and tell you that this 
all totaled $88,000, which would be the equivalent to around $215,000 in today's money. To prove their case, the state called multiple witnesses to tell the jury about the abuse in the home and also the threats Frank had made. And no one was able to do this better than Judy's coworker, who had overheard all of those phone calls. The prosecution also had two of Frank's coworkers who said that Frank asked them for help killing his wife. One of them, a man named Jerry, said that he himself joked about killing his own wife in the summer of 1988. This remark sent Frank down the path of coming up with this plan about how they could kill each other's spouse and they would both get away with it. Jerry brushed it off until two weeks later when Frank brought it up again and said that they should do it when they were each out of town so that they would have solid alibis. He's literally plagiarizing strangers on a train. The other coworker, Raymond, testified that one month before Judy, Chad, and Jason were murdered, Frank asked him if he knew anyone he could hire to kill his family. A couple of weeks later, he followed up on this, saying that he had $20,000 to pay for someone to kill his wife and stepsons. Frank specifically said he did not want his children hurt. But like Jerry before him, Raymond brushed it off as not being that serious. These conversations showed a few things. One, that Frank had already planned out the perfect alibi of being out of town. And two, that he specifically wanted his kids safely out of the way, which is what he arranged. But Frank either couldn't find anyone to do it for him, or he decided to save his money and kill them himself. Then the 911 call was entered into evidence. The defense did not want the jury to hear it because it was enhanced, and I would describe it as garbled. If the jury was going to listen to the call and even the background of the call, they should be listening to it as it was recorded and not altered in any way. But if the enhanced version was allowed in, they didn't want a transcript to be provided to the jury. They wanted the jury to hear it without any influence and let them make up their own minds about what it does or does not say. To illustrate the defense's concern, I'm going to give you an example. I want you to listen to this clip. It is three words in a row. Did you hear words? I'm actually going to play it again, but I'm going to tell you what it says. It says educators, responsible, and social. So knowing what the words were, did you hear them the second time? So that clip is of a piano that mimics speech tones enough that we can tell what it's saying, but often only if we already know what it is saying. There are some videos on YouTube about this and about other auditory illusions, and most of them are really just showing us that our brains don't rely solely on what we hear to interpret what we are hearing. Our brains use other information and fills it in. So if the jury was told what the 911 call supposedly said, that's information their brains would then use to hear what the prosecutor said they were going to hear. The main track of the 911 call is Jason saying, help me, the dispatcher saying, what's the problem, and then Jason giving the address. We don't hear those parts in the enhanced audio because they pulled it out to pull forward the background noise. So I don't normally play 911 calls, but I am going to play this one because I want to give you an idea of how it sounded to the jury so that you can understand the state's case. And I want to know if you hear anything. Again, this is just the background noise. You are not going to hear Jason talking. I'm going to play it twice in a row. So if you completely object to hearing 911 calls in any context, skip ahead 10 seconds. I listen to that in silence on my studio headphones and I still can't make out words. So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to play it one more time, but I'm going to tell you what the jury was told it says. 
they were told it said, Frank, no, God help me. Now, fast forward five seconds if you do not want to hear the clip. Did you hear it now that you know what you were supposed to hear? I do want to point out something that the jury was not told. This transcript of the call was the final transcription of the call, but not the only one. There were multiple drafts after different people listened. Some heard Frank Frank stop, another heard Frank Frank no, another heard Frank no God no. The only thing everyone agreed on was that they heard Frank's name being said, but the people who made these transcriptions all knew Frank Smith was the estranged husband and the prime suspect. They weren't exactly unbiased listeners. So is this a case of them hearing what they were looking for? You can let me know if you heard something. I know I didn't, but the judge who was setting bond in this case did hear something because as soon as he heard it, he said, yeah, no bond in this case. But I'm just going to say that I'm glad the state had much more solid evidence, like the handprint in blood that was missing two fingers. Now, Frank's defense was that he was innocent and he could prove it through his alibi. He testified that he didn't leave his parents' house at 1030. That's when he arrived there, having suddenly remembered he had to go to Kentucky for work. He said he stayed at his parents' house for a while with the twins and his two older children before he left at 11.20 p.m. So when the 911 call was made, according to this new timeline, Frank was at least 30 minutes away. When Frank was asked about scratches police saw on him after the murders, he explained they came from playing with his energetic puppy. When he was asked about the previous assaults on Judy and Jason, he denied they ever happened. When asked about threatening their lives, Frank said that also never happened. And when it came to telling his coworkers about getting someone to kill Judy and the kids, those conversations never happened. The state's witnesses were all lying, every last one of them. Frank claimed he didn't own an all, in spite of owning an otherwise complete leatherworking kit. He said he never had a 22, even though witnesses said he did, and he owned a holster for it. He admitted he did have a knife, but not one that would have caused the wounds that were seen on Judy and the boys. As for why he seemed uninterested when the police showed up to question him after the bodies were found, Frank said it was just because he was tired since he had driven all night, worked all day, only to then drive back home. He was just thinking about answering the questions so that they would go away so that he could get some sleep. As for the handprint, Frank said there were other people in the world who were also missing two fingers on their left hand, and maybe one of them killed his family. Frank claimed he was being framed. He loved Judy and he loved his stepsons as if they were his own. He said he and Judy were actually reconciling at the time of the murders, and even if it didn't work out, he wasn't worried about getting custody of the twins. He accused Judy of having forged the divorce papers from her second husband and said his marriage to Judy wouldn't have been legal under those circumstances. I think he was saying that because she forged documents, he could somehow prove she wasn't fit as a parent. But here's the thing. The quickie Reno divorce would have required the husband to show up in person when applying. So if Judy's husband Gary wasn't there, someone was. And there is reason to believe that if the story is true, that person pretending to be Gary would have been Frank. He would have been an equal participant in the deception if it happened. In addition to Frank's testimony, Frank's mother and daughter both testified that he didn't leave the house until at least 11.15 on the night of the murders, making it impossible for him to be the killer. But on rebuttal, the state called three officers who all testified that Frank and his mother said on October 2nd that he left around 10.30 on October 1st. That gave him plenty of time to get to the house to commit the murders. They changed their timelines only at trial. The jury took only about an hour to deliberate before finding Oscar Franklin Smith guilty on all three counts, which is no surprise to me. Even though I question the 911 call enhancement, I think the other evidence against him, particularly that handprint, was pretty solid. 
At sentencing, his defense attorney told the jury that no matter what, Frank was spending the rest of his life in jail. He said that the question was if he died when God decided he died, or did he die when the jury members said. There was also mitigating evidence presented, which included Frank's childhood with a father who was diagnosed with schizophrenia in the 1940s, which was before there were really effective treatments. This caused instability in the home, and Frank and his six siblings attended 13 or 14 different schools because they moved at least once a year. A psychologist testified that Frank had a paranoid personality disorder, chronic depressive neurosis, and paranoid delusional disorder. She said that Frank truly believed he was framed, whether that was reality or not. On rebuttal, the state called a clinical psychologist who had examined Frank prior to trial to determine his competence. He testified that Frank said he did not want to go with an insanity defense because he would have trouble later on getting a home loan, which seems like an odd thing to consider when most innocent people wouldn't want an insanity defense because they didn't do it. This psychologist said Frank was not delusional or mentally ill, but he did agree he had a personality disorder. In the end, the jury found that the aggravating factors outweighed the mitigating circumstances and sentenced Frank Smith to die in the electric chair. Frank went off to death row to fight his appeals, which we'll get into, while this case made 1989 Tennesseans discuss, openly and honestly, intimate partner violence. The newspaper, The Tennessean, ran articles with experts. There were panels hosted by local churches, some which included Judy's father speaking out about red flags and points of intervention for families and church communities. He and his wife were worried about Judy, but they didn't know what to say and they didn't want to pry. He encouraged people to start speaking up when they suspected someone in their life was in an abusive relationship. So Frank's appeals then moved forward through the system. On his direct appeal, he listed very many things, and the court agreed that some were errors at trial. Some were procedural, like allowing the state to mention something that should have only been brought up during rebuttal. Another issue was a statement that was allowed in at trial. When Frank was in Kentucky working the morning after the murders, he talked with an employee named Clinton about gun control and the talks of banning automatic weapons. Yes, Americans have been having these conversations for a very long time. So Clinton made a comment about how the bans were pushed due to mass murders, like one where a man killed a number of people at a McDonald's in California. Frank said, according to Clinton's testimony, that you never know when one of us could snap and do something like that. The appellate court agreed that this statement had a little probative value, but it also had little prejudicial harm. It shouldn't have been allowed in, but it didn't really change anything that it was. And that's how they ruled on all the errors. If those errors did not happen, Frank still would have been convicted. In spite of losing his direct appeal and sitting on death row, Frank was not really at risk of being executed. The death penalty in Tennessee was being handed out, but it was not used from 1960 until 2000. And when it did resume, lethal injection was the new legal method. However, anyone convicted before 1999 could opt for the electric chair if they wanted. Tennessee is only one of six states that allows this, and it's the only state to use the electric chair in the last decade. Those who opted for it generally cited concerns with lethal injection. More and more reports were coming out about botched executions where the person being killed was clearly experiencing pain and distress during the procedure. But even after the death penalty was reinstated in Tennessee, Frank didn't face an execution date until 2020, 30 years after his conviction. He was scheduled to die by lethal injection in June 2020, but COVID stopped executions. He was given another date, but executions hadn't resumed yet, so then it was pushed out once again. Finally, April 21st, 2022 was the date set and Frank Smith was going to be the first person in Tennessee executed after the pandemic had halted them. His attorneys filed an appeal 17 days before the execution, saying that the palm print match didn't really hold up to more advanced scrutiny 
and that there was DNA on the all that wasn't Frank's or any of the victims. They said this proved an unknown assailant had killed the family. This appeal was denied, though, with the court saying that even if all that information was available at the time of trial, it wouldn't have changed anything. The judge writing the decision gave a few pieces of evidence that he believed still proved Frank's guilt, including the threats he made, the life insurance policies, and the witness who saw Frank's car. And then he also included the 911 call recording of one of the victims saying Frank's name. He had me up until that recording. I just honestly do not hear what everyone else apparently hears. Anyway, with this denial, it looked like 72-year-old Oscar Franklin Smith was going to be put to death after nearly 32 years on death row. And then one hour before the execution, after Frank had eaten his last meal and spoke with his chaplain, Governor Bill Lee granted a temporary reprieve. He had been made aware of evidence that the Tennessee Department of Corrections had not followed proper protocol in preparing the drugs for the execution. Tennessee uses a three-drug cocktail to sedate, paralyze, and kill the inmate. Because pharmaceutical companies don't want to be associated with the death penalty, it's hard to get these drugs. The companies outright refuse to sell them to the prison systems where the death penalty is in place. So Tennessee, like other states, have had to turn to compounding pharmacies who custom mix the drugs. Because it is mixed for them, the state does require the drugs be tested for endotoxins that can contaminate medications. The endotoxins can cause the inmate to become sick, which you might think doesn't really matter if they're going to be dead in five minutes anyway. But the answer is, it does matter. While the Supreme Court has ruled that the death penalty itself isn't cruel and unusual punishment, which is barred by the Constitution, they have ruled that painful executions are. The state has to make it as painless as possible, and endotoxins could have them run headfirst into an Eighth Amendment issue. Governor Lee was made aware that they didn't test it only because Frank's attorney had asked for a copy of the test results the day before the execution. The Department of Corrections asked the person who procured the drugs, who then asked the pharmacist. And the pharmacist said that the testing was not done as it's not federally required, and they were not told to do it. They were then asked if they had any samples left from the batch to test, and they were told they didn't. At this point, the Department of Corrections could do nothing except ask the governor to grant the reprieve. So the day after the execution was called off, the pharmacy told the state that they actually hadn't tested the drugs used in the two previous executions either because they were never asked to do so. Though it was part of Tennessee's lethal injection protocol, the pharmacy was never given a copy of the protocol. Governor Lee then extended the temporary reprieve to all death row inmates, which included Frank, while an investigation was held. The report was issued in December 2022, and it showed that the testing hadn't been done in any of the executions that occurred from 2018 until 2020. The report also cited a lack of oversight for the single staff member who was in charge of getting the drugs. They had one person who procured the drugs and following the protocols fell on them entirely, but they were not given the supervision or support they needed to then follow the rules. If not for Frank's attorney asking for the test results, we still wouldn't know about this issue. When the report came out, the governor fired the Department of Corrections deputy commissioner and the inspector general. He said that they needed to revise the protocols and then train everyone on what they were. Once that is in place, Governor Lee intends executions to resume. As of a court filing that was filed in early May 2023, so a couple weeks ago as I record this, they said they had no timeline on when this would happen. The state legislature is not wanting to wait on the Department of Corrections, and a bill was introduced to bring back death by firing squad as a way to circumvent the lethal injection issues. 
Then in March of this year, Senator Paul Sherrill suggested in a committee meeting that they include hanging from a tree in the possibilities of new methods of execution, or I guess bringing back old methods. But given Tennessee's history with racial lynchings, these remarks went over about as well as you would think, and he walked it back by saying it was an exaggerated comment, and he ended up even apologizing for it. He was then removed from the Justice Committee. But there is another way for Tennessee to continue executions. Back in 2014, as more and more pharmacies refused to work with states in regards to getting lethal injection drugs, Tennessee passed a law that said if the state cannot get the drugs for lethal injection, they could start using the electric chair again. If that actually happens, I expect even more legal challenges to it. Back when the law initially passed, there were already concerns raised that it was unconstitutional to change the method of execution after someone had already been sentenced. That's the reason why those sentenced before lethal injection still have the option of the electric chair. It would actually be easier to just fix the protocol issues than introduce an old, outdated method of execution. It would be easiest to just commute the death sentences but that is the only solution Tennessee has made it clear they are not looking at. As of this recording, Frank Smith does not have another execution date set. He is the oldest man on Tennessee's death row at the age of 73. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. Crimelines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for.